0: Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Many of the things that we will deal with in a compass night like this one As we try to survey the entire Old Testament in one semester, we'll necessarily require you to go back to where we've been in the last ten years. Every year we've picked one part of understanding Christian theology understanding the role of the Bible, understanding who God is, understanding Christ and His work, understanding the Holy Spirit, who He is, understanding what the church is all about, understanding what the end times says in terms of what's coming in the end. All of these things will crisscross with our topics here in the Old Testament, so many times I may refer you back to our recorded and available for free on our Focal Point website, some of those uh, sermons or lectures, you might call them. And it might be helpful from time to time just to know we can't establish always in a survey like this, the veracity or be able to prove uh, every aspect of what we're bringing up. We have to go back to some other lectures to deal with many of these things. So from time to time, I will highlight those. And hopefully you've all got your Compass Bible Church app or your focal point app, and you can access all of that really easily while you're going about your weekly work. But this year, Old Testament survey. Let's ask a real fundamental question as we get started. What is the Old Testament? And not to re-teach the things that we dealt with in our bibliology semester, I do want to say very clearly that the Old Testament is not man's best thoughts about God. This is not people sitting down and surmising what they believe God to be. It's not people writing history about themselves or their nation, hoping that we might gather some morality or some ideas or some thoughts that would help us understand something transcendent or just principles to live by. That's not what the Old Testament is. As the Bible repeatedly tells us, what we have in the Old Testament, just as we have in the New Testament, is God's actual thoughts on paper. We have God's very Words we have a record of what God has said, certainly He is speaking through the historical events that are recorded in the Old Testament, which is not the totality of the Old Testament, but a good majority of the Old Testament, what we would call narrative literary genre, a kite kind of writing that describes a story, and of course, a lot of the Old Testament is story, but it 's much, much more than that, as we will see, and just to remind you of what the New Testament says, specifically about the Old Testament in Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. it's very important for us to revisit this and understand it as we're about to dive into this book, that all Scripture, as Paul talked to Timothy looking back at the Old Testament, is breathed out. Now notice that phrase, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Clearly, Paul had in mind what was being recorded or what had been recorded in the Old Testament as he speaks about Timothy as a young child, learning this from his mother and grandmother as he became acquainted with the sacred writings, so surely in view, at least specifically in view, was the Old Testament text. And the Old Testament text is said here to be breathed out by God. Now, there's only a few modern translations that translate it this way. If you've been in our bibliology text or heard me ever teach on this or someone else teach on it or you've read on this, you understand that old translations of English of the English text will translate this inspired by God. Inspired. And in your theology or doctrinal textbooks, you'll have a heading on that textbook that'll say the inspiration of Scripture, which will deal with both the Old Testament and New Testament. The reason that many translators today are trying to get away from that translation of the Greek word theopaneustos a compound word, theos, God, and from the verb neo to breathe is because the word inspiration doesn't mean in our modern era what it used to mean. Matter of fact, this word that's translated here in the ESV to be breathed out is trying to kind of leapfrog over the modern usage of the word inspired to go back to what this word actually means. Nuo means to breathe. And way back in Wycliffe's day, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago when we got our first English New Testament, he took that word that was in the Latin translation of of the New Testament and he took that word inspiro, it's a, it's a Latin word, and he simply used the English word that corresponded to it, which meant the same thing back in the 14, 15, 1600s. Inspiro, if you look it up in a Latin lexicon, will mean exactly what nuo means, and that is to breathe out, to breathe, to breathe out. And when you use the word nuo or inspiro in Latin, or you use the word nuo in Greek, You clearly are speaking about or denoting something that is being breathed out, words that are coming out of one's mouth. Today, though, inspiration means that you are struck with some ingenuity, some creativity. You are motivated to get up and clean the garage on a Saturday, whatever it is you feel inspired to do that some artist is inspired to paint a painting. And that is not what this text is saying to us. As a matter of fact, I hear great theologians every now and then take a big misstep by saying things like the authors of the New Testament were inspired to write the Bible. Now, I I heard someone recently say that who, who knows better, and I'm sure he caught himself later, but that is the way we use the word inspired. But this text does not tell us that the authors were inspired. It doesn't tell us that the readers are inspired. It tells us that the documents themselves, the Scripture is breathed out, or to use the old word, inspired by God. So what we have when we look at the Old Testament, certainly the New Testament would be a whole other set of passages we could look at in this regard, but as we're speaking of the Old Testament, when someone reads the Old Testament, the claim of the Bible is that this is God's very word, as though God were speaking. Let me show you how it's described in other places in the Bible. Acts chapter 1, verse 16, here's the reference And everyone understood it this way, certainly you understood the power and prophecies of Scripture, that the Scripture, when it made prophetic statements, is showing that it's written by God. The Scripture, he says in this one particular phrase, had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit, I underlined it, spoke. Now, he's referring to something that David wrote. Oh yeah, it was by the mouth of David. It was a predictive prophecy that came through David, but it was the Holy Spirit speaking. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. There's the agency by the mouth of David. So when you read the Psalms, particular Psalms that are written by David, the Bible is saying in the New Testament, looking back at the Old Testament, these are the words of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one for you. Acts chapter 28, verses 25 and 26. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers... Through Isaiah the prophet, and then he goes on to quote it Go, therefore, and on the the sentence goes as he quotes Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah, but he says it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who was saying these things. He said it to the original audience, and it was through the pen of Isaiah the prophet. When we pick up the Old Testament, as we're about to do and study this for the next few weeks, next few months, we're looking at a document that we must always remember at the outset is a record of God's very words the spoken Word of God. Of course, there's a lot to how that has come down to us. It has not been translated millions of times, as the skeptics say. It's not something that's unreliable. It's not like a big telephone game that people have played through history. Go back to our bibliology lectures, and you can study very carefully with me as I take you through all the steps which make us very confident that we've got an accurate record of what was originally written by David or Isaiah or the Apostle Paul or Peter which is, in this case, as we think of the Old Testament, words spoken by the Spirit of God Himself. What is the Old Testament? These are God's words that we're going to be looking at. And it is an Old Testament. (laughs) That's what we call it. And I might want to clarify. You might say testaments with an S. Now, you can try and summarize it as a testament, but really, we're talking about testaments. Now, we're going to have some numbers here for you to write down, but this is just some bullet points before we get to the numbers. You want other words to define what we mean with this title, testament? You can replace this word. It is an old covenant, or I would say, set of covenants. It's an old set of, to use another word that we use more often, agreements. It's a set of partnerships. It's a set of contracts. What kind of contracts? A set of contracts, agreements, partnerships between God and people. The Old Testament, the words that we use to describe these 39 books that we're going to study, is called the Old Testament. That's shorthand for a bunch of writings that come from God that record his contracts. Those are the high points of the Old Testament. His agreements, his partnerships, as he enters into a relational, covenantal partnership with people. That's why we call it the Old Testament. As you'll see from my theology, if you're well versed in theology, I don't believe it's just one covenant, as some would try to say. There's many covenants. Let's look at six of them in the Old Testament, just real quickly. Number one, subpoint C. Let's talk about God's covenant, His agreement, His partnership. He entered into some kind of contractual agreement with Noah. He calls it a covenant. This is a word used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and there are specific and very important high points in the Old Testament where we have covenants. We don't see much about it beyond what we read in Genesis 9, but after the flood, God enters into a covenant with Noah as a representative of mankind, and he says, what? No longer will I destroy the earth with water. I will not flood the entire earth again. We call it the Noahic covenant. Now, usually the covenant involves a promise on God's part and some kind of commitment on the man's part or the person's part. And in this case, it's a really one-sided promise. It's a promise, I guess, that you could say implies the fact that you would be wise to be in agreement with me to commit to do right because I just destroyed the world because all you guys were doing wrong. Nevertheless, there's nothing dictated or itemized in the Noahic covenant. It is simply a call that God makes that he will not flood the world again with water, at least not the totality of it, which we'll look at when we get to this next time we get together. Sure, there's some flooding in Houston. There'll be flooding in Florida, but we're talking about a universal flood, and that's the description in Genesis. We'll look at that next time we're together. Number two, God's covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. Very, very, very important covenant. On which many of the covenants that I'm about to itemize really trace their way back. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. This one's very clearly a one-sided covenant where God, through the kind of covenantal symbolism that is of the ancient era, of the second millennium B.C., he divides the animal, walks through this, doesn't allow Abraham to do the same thing. Look at that. But this is clearly saying, listen, I'm going to sign the contract. I'm not even going to make you sign it. And I'm going to make a promise to you. Now, there were parts of the Abrahamic covenant where he says, you do this and these things will go well for you because it's reiterated in Genesis 12. That's where we first find it. Genesis 15, Genesis 17. We see it many times reiterated and certainly even by his children and grandchildren as God continues to talk about the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, primarily a one-sided covenant. Number three, God's land covenant. God makes a covenant that I'm going to make you, Abraham, a great nation from you, a great people through which the whole world will be blessed. And there's going to be a land that this nation that I raise up from your lineage, your descendants, I'm going to put them in a land, the land of Canaan. The old school textbooks call it the Palestinian covenant. That word has kind of fallen out of favor, at least in um, those that are sensitive to the Jewish people reading our books about the land covenant. Nevertheless, if you're reading in a Bible survey book, a, a theology book, you'll find that sometimes it's the Palestinian covenant, the land covenant. God makes a promise. And he does say this in Deuteronomy 29, if you want to know where it's found. It's found really in 29 and 30, Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30, where he says, Here's some of the quid pro quo of this promise. You do these things, and though I give you the title deed to this property here, this piece of real estate in the Middle East, uh, I, I'm going to kick you out if you don't obey me or you become idolaters. Uh, they didn't lose The rights to it, the pink slip was not lost, so to speak, the deed was not lost, but God says, I have the right to take you out of it and I'll bring you back when you repent. Number four, God's covenant with Israel. We call it the Mosaic covenant. God makes a promise with the individual Noah. He makes a promise with the individual Abraham. He makes a promise now to the nation with a land covenant, a covenant and a promise to the nation of Israel regarding the rules that come through Moses at Mount Sinai. And of course, he says, I'll bless you if you keep these rules. And if you don't keep these rules, there'll be Consequences, and in that regard, God enters into this partnership, and, as he says in the scriptures, and Moses reiterates, setting before the people life and death based on god 's agreement, like we might make with our children. You do these things, and this blessing will come, you do those things, and these repercussions and consequences will come. Number five, God makes a covenant with David. we call it the davidic covenant it 's found in Second Samuel chapter seven, a very important chapter in the Bible because Christ clearly is in view in that text and as it is read from the New Testament perspective and the writers of the Gospels, they keep tracing things back to this promise to David. So we see this often referred to even in the prophets, this promise that one day God will raise up a descendant of David who will be the king of the whole world. We celebrate it every Christmas. We often look at those Old Testament passages, their themes of our songs, the Davidic covenant. Then God forecasts a new covenant. In the latter prophets, he makes a promise to the people of Israel and he says there's going to be a new covenant, a new covenant that's going to affect the people of the earth, all people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. There will be, as we see in the book of Revelation, people entering into the blessing that was given to Abraham and promised to Abraham, and it's going to be a completely different kind of covenant in that it will be fulfilled, all the stipulations of the previous covenants in the person of Christ, and his spirit then will invade the people's hearts changing their heart, and I will move them to keep my rules and laws, and then I will be free to bless them. Righteousness will be fulfilled, so much to that. The New Testament is the new covenant, that's what we call it, and it is an explanation of how God's promise, after all those Old Testament promises could not be kept by human beings, were now met in Christ, and all the blessings to the people who put their trust in Christ are now going to be fulfilled. That's why we call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament is the Old Covenant. New Testament is a new covenant. That's an oversimplification, and I've tried to make that clear by telling you the Old Testament is a set of covenants. There's even more than this, but these are the primary covenants of the Old Testament, and those covenants are all covenants that cannot be, will not be, fulfilled or met by human beings. And so Christ comes. God himself in human form fulfills all the stipulations and requirements of the covenant and then allows the blessing to come to us along with the promise of invading our lives in the third person of the Godhead that we might be moved to walk in his ways and his precepts and obey his law. Old Testament, that's why we call it that. But really, when you come to a Thursday night and you say, we're going to study the Old Testament, you're thinking it's a collection of books. And you're right. There are 39 books of the Old Testament. We're going to try to look at each one of those over the next few months. They're written over about a thousand year span of time. The 15th century BC, we get the first set of books. The Torah, the Pentateuch. These first five books of Moses, we call them, in the 15th century BC, about 1445 to 1440. And then we have the last six books, Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, written in the 5th century BC. So, we got a thousand years in which they're penned, of course, Genesis, which we'll look at next time, is referring back to events before the writing, written in the 15th century BC, but it's going back far beyond that. We'll divide that book in half, the first 11 chapters, and then chapters 12 through 50, and we'll see how these nicely lay out in our minds and our thinking. Of course, the dividing line is the Abrahamic covenant. As God chooses a person through which to build the nation, through which to bless the world, and that's why you're sitting here, I hope, with your sins forgiven and the hope of the new Jerusalem on the horizon. There are 11 books in the Old Testament that advance what I'm calling in this study a timeline. The timeline of the Old Testament, 11 key books that will be the focus primarily of our time together. All of them will be fit together on this chart on the back that we'll get to in a minute. But first, let's think through those timeline books. So number two on your outline, we've got a chart that we want to fill in here as we think through the timeline books, as I call them, that are the backbone, the spinal cord of the Old Testament on which the ribs and everything else that hangs. So we're going to piece together the Old Testament, but we need to understand this. Here's the first six lines of the chart that you have there on your worksheet. So let's start. The first book That advances the timeline, of course, is the book of Genesis. So let's jot that down. Number one, Bible book, Genesis. The main concept really is tied up in the name of the book. The name Genesis means beginnings. It's all about beginnings, the beginning of the world, the beginning of mankind, the beginning of a nation, God's beginning and setting things up. He's forming something for his glory and purpose, and he wants us to be a part of it. And Genesis is laying the found for that. At this point, you should already know where we're going. Chapter 12 is the key chapter in this book, what happens, the Abrahamic covenant. On this particular promise, and we'll spend time here next time we get together, there is so much that relates to what we go and study every week as we look into the New Testament book of Luke, for instance. We're studying the ramifications of what God has promised in Abraham so long ago. So timeline book number one, Genesis If you think of Genesis, you just think of God's laying a foundation. The beginnings of stuff is all described and talked about. Key chapter, we should never forget chapter 12 of Genesis because it starts the most important covenant there as we think about God laying the foundation for our salvation. Exodus is the next book that advances the timeline. Exodus, you should get the idea of what this book is really focusing on by the title. We put exit signs over those doors because that's how you get out. This is all about deliverance. That perhaps is a richer word than exit. I could put the word exit. Uh, But really it's about a rich redemptive story of God taking prisoners and slaves in Egypt and freeing them and allowing them to go out. So the key chapter here is also 12, just happens to be, because in chapter 12 we see the first Passover, which would become the memorial meal that would be the reminder to the rest of Jewish history that God delivers those enslaved And God is all about setting his people free. And even Jesus picks up on these themes in many different ways in his teaching and talks about the redemption that he comes to bring, which reflects that exodus, that deliverance, that redemption in the book of Exodus. Remember chapter 12. There's another important chapter, by the way, that you should always remember in Exodus when God gives the Mosaic covenant. It didn't make our list right here. But in chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments, which would be good to put maybe in the margin so you don't forget. If you want to know some very important biblical chapters... Genesis 12, Exodus 12, Exodus 20. So far, let's build this chart. Those are the key chapters so far. Numbers is the next one. Genesis, Exodus. Now you're saying, what happened to Leviticus? Well, it's not here. We'll get back to it. But we're going to advance the timeline. And the timeline is going to be advanced when we get to the end of Exodus and we start the beginning of Numbers. Numbers, you might say, well, if we're going to follow the pattern, let's just, it's about counting. Well, it is about counting. And a big part of starting the book of Numbers is about counting for the first ten chapters. But it really is about assessing the people as they go through the desert. We're taking census. We're seeing who's there. And God is establishing the fact that He's taking people out of Egypt. He's got all of them numbered, even the hairs on their head numbered, as Jesus would point out later. But they end up wandering. This is not a happy book in many ways. Though God is showing that he is faithful to take care of his people, it's a book about them wandering in the wilderness. Chapter 14 is the pivotal chapter that is to be remembered and memorized as you think about the book of Numbers. It is when they were tested, their faith was tested, at the city of Kadesh Barnea, which was the front doorstep to the promised land. And God had said... Listen, you trust me, I will go in and lead you and we will establish the nation of Israel that I promised to Abraham if you trust me. They instead listened to the ten spies who came back from the land after spying it out and they said, no, it's too hard, they look too big, it's too scary, we shouldn't do it. And the people said, Moses, we're not going in. That commenced 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Chapter 14 is key And surrounding that chapter, and really starting in 12, 13, this is a book that's full of complaining. So if you want to see what God thinks of complaining, study Numbers chapter 12, 13, 14, all the way to the end of the book. It's a lack of faith, by the way, when we complain. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua. What happened to Deuteronomy? It's not here. It's going to be discussed later. It doesn't advance the timeline. Timeline book number four, Joshua. Joshua, I hope as you know, was Moses' understudy. He was his right hand man. He was one of the two of the twelve spies that came out and said, we can take this land. God said, listen, all your peers don't want to take it except for Caleb. I'm going to, uh, punish them and discipline them for this. They're all going to die off. We're going to have the young people grow up and you, an old man at this point, you know, aging man, Joshua, Uh, you're going to lead the people in the conquest of the promised land. So they go into Canaan, and this advances the history and timeline of the Old Testament. Key chapter here would be Joshua uh, chapter 6, because we had the stronghold of Canaan, the city of Jericho. And here battle, as the old song says, fought the battle of Jericho which wasn't much of a fight, as you remember, and we'll look at it when we get there. But a very important reminder, just like God would have defeated the people had they believed him at Kadesh Barnea, here God proves that, listen, I don't care how big the city is uh, that is against you. Uh, with me, we can conquer, and I will fulfill my promises. Chapter 6, good to remember and memorize that very important chapter. Judges is our next timeline book. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges. Judges, after the conquest and the settlement in Canaan, we had a very sad and dark chapter. As I said recently, I think in a sermon, this is over 300 years of history. We have about 30 years in Joshua covered. We get 300 plus in Judges, and it's a big book of failure. Just like we saw even at the end of the Old Testament, when people get comfortable, when they settle in, they get to that land of of milk and honey, or they live in prosperous places like Laodicea or Orange County, they often get very complacent about spiritual things and become a compromised people. And that's what happened here in Judges. Chapter 2, if you're going to pick a chapter, they're all pretty dark, but I guess we're going to pick chapter 2 because that begins this cycle of sin, this cycle of idolatry. And when they're rebellious, they don't obey God. When they turn their back on God, God says, listen, if you're going to back off from me, I'm going to back off from you. And then the oppressors come and they enslave them, and they oppress them, and they attack them. With enough of that pain in their lives, much like us, when we have enough pain, we start getting very spiritual, and we start asking God for help. And when God points out the sin in their lives, and they say, God, okay, I see it. I'm a sinner. Please help us now. Then God said, fine. And he sends in a, what we call a judge in the book of Judges, who's really a military commander in most cases. And he goes out and is able to free them, much like a mini-Moses, confronting the Pharaoh of that generation, that judge goes out and frees the people from that oppression. And then they have a time of prosperity. And we'll look at that cycle in Judges, and we'll see some very famous people that you know from Bible stories from your youth, and they were folks that were uh, they were freed from the oppression. A cycle, many times. We'll look at that 12, 13 times in Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel. We don't have all the books here in the right order, at least the order that you're used to, but we have now six books that advance the timeline. The key word here would be monarchy, or king, or a kingdom, a kingdom with a physical king reigning on a throne. And that's what we have taking place in Samuel. It was a very pivotal point in the history of Israel. Chapter 8 is the key chapter because that's when Saul, the first king of Israel, becomes the king. Before that time, God was trying to rule them directly through priests and prophets and judges. And now they say, we want to be like all the other nations, give us a king. And they get a king, and he's not all that, as you remember. Saul becomes the king. We'll look at that, tie some stories in that I'm sure you know. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Number 7 on your chart. 2 Samuel's main concept is the real hero of the Old Testament, as imperfect as he is, King David we get so much of his story from the time he's a shepherd boy killing uh, Goliath, all the way to his old age and his death. Second Samuel is a key book. We're introduced to him in First Samuel, but Second Samuel, it's uh, very important as he rises to leadership in Israel, takes over the throne of Saul, and in chapter seven he is given a promise, entering into an agreement with God in something called the Abrahamic Covenant. God speaks of discipline to his descendants, but he speaks ultimately of one who would fulfill everything perfectly and would be the leader who would lead all the people, not just the people of Israel. And the prophets expand on this, and there's a great promise regarding the coming Christ. First Kings is the next book. First Kings is a book that if you were to remember one word, you should remember the word division. Yes, we learn about the kings. But in that book, we see the sad story of the kingdom splitting in chapter 12. That's the key chapter, and Israel splits in two. If you're going to think in a linear way through the Old Testament, you've got to know that we've got some kind of direct leadership of god until we have a monarchy and in a monarchy we've got a united kingdom until we reach chapter 12 of first kings and then the kingdom splits in half solomon david's son has a son named rehoboam and jeroboam and rehoboam is rehoboam is the son jeroboam takes the northern kingdom and it's split in half we'll talk about that. Second Kings continues the timeline. Key word here is captivity, and because we have a split kingdom, we need two key chapters here, chapter 17 and 25. These are important to remember, and that seems like there's those chapters are close together for the amount of time that separates them as we'll see in a minute. Nevertheless, chapter 17 represents the fall of the north, and then we have the fall of the south in chapter 25. Israel, of course, is composed of 12 Tribes, when Joshua conquered the land and distributed the land to the people, they all got their own territories. After the split, they became rivals. After the fall of their kingdoms, it was a very sad time, particularly for the north. From the north, we get the Samaritans because the Assyrians, we'll learn much more about this, conquered them, intermarried with them. But the south goes into captivity. Here's some words you need the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom, or two tribes, they go into exile. Here's a word that I'm going to use throughout this semester. Captivity, exile, exilic. This is a 70-year period where the southern tribes are taken prisoner by the Babylonians for 70 years. So in that little strip there, you want to write down southern kingdom. It's also called Judah taken to Babylon, into exile, or captivity. That is a huge marker in our timeline and in our thinking. And so many things will will uh, define whether or not we're talking about Israel as a nation that is unified, then it's split, then one nation goes away. We have a single kingdom after the fall of the north, then we have this huge thing called the exile, and they go off into exile for 70 years. Number 10, first column. Ezra, the book of Ezra, number 10. The main concept here, you can write this word down, is temple. Now, they've had a temple. Solomon built the first temple in about 10th century BC, but we have here now the reconstruction of the temple because, of course, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple, and so Ezra is now rebuilding the temple. In chapter 6, which is the key chapter in this book, the temple foundation is laid, not finished, but this starts what we call the second temple period of the history of Israel, We'll talk about that A second temple. There's a third temple coming according to the prophetic promises of Scripture. But right now at this particular juncture, we have the establishment of the second temple. Now, as we study that, it's going to be much less than Solomon's temple. That was the heyday, the golden era of Old Testament Israel. And yet by the time you get to Jesus's day, they're talking about how wonderful this temple is. Well, that's a temple that was built by Ezra and his men, and yet it was refurbished, restructured, and, and gilded by Herod, Herod the Great. So that's why it was so fabulous, and yet we're going to read about the construction of it, and the old-timers are going to cry because they're going to say, this temple is nothing compared to Solomon's temple. We saw Solomon's temple before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. So we'll try to make sure we don't misunderstand that. It was the second temple period, which was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus, who would later be the emperor of Rome, but that temple... Was a refurbished temple. It's still the second temple. Number 11, Nehemiah. Keyword here is walls. The walls of the city, that is, also happens to be chapter 6 is our key chapter. And what happens in Nehemiah. The Jerusalem walls are rebuilt. The walls are rebuilt. There's a lot to the reconstruction of the city, and it's going to take many years for the city to be up and functioning and running, but they needed the walls. The defensive walls needed to be in place, and they were built in 52 days under the watchful eye, and it's an amazing story. So there are our timeline books. Those timeline books with that simple flow of biblical history that I just gave you sets up the bookshelf, or the bookends rather, on the bookshelf, and that everything else fits into What I'd like to do now is give you some time markers to all of this. Now, you see on the back of your worksheet here, you'll see 11 boxes. And you'll say, well, why didn't you fill those out because you need to memorize these. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, you can abbreviate them if you'd like, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. We're going to get real familiar with those 11 books. So we want to be able to write those down at the drop of a hat, and then you're going to see if you're a fast writer under letter, letter C, hey, we got the same 11 books there. Why didn't you print them for us? Because we need to get used to writing these because we need to memorize the 11 timeline books of the old testament genesis exodus numbers joshua judges first samuel second samuel first Kings, second kings ezra nehemiah it's not that hard write them all down now we're going to try to figure out the time markers that will help us think through this flow of history let's start with the first event in genesis which i can't give you a date for genesis we're going to talk about this next time creation so i got a question mark there and i'll tell you why when we get to that it's not billions of years by the way Chapter 12, we have the Abrahamic Covenant. I'm giving you round numbers here, but if you can think this way, you'll be a very educated Bible student if you can just remember some basic numbers. 2000 BC, rough and dirty, is right there in the time of Abraham. So if you can remember Abraham, who lived from about 2166 to 1991. Remember all the... I'm not putting BC in front of any of this, not because I'm politically correct. I'm not putting BC because all of the things we're going to talk about in the Old Testament, we are going to date BC, so I'm not even going to worry about that. All these numbers are working backwards as we move forwards, just like the language of Hebrew itself, moving the wrong direction. They say it's moving the right direction, just like when I was in London recently saying, don't say they drive on the wrong side of the street. They think we drive on the wrong side of the street. The Hebrews write in the wrong direction. No, they think we write in the wrong direction. All right, sorry. Another key date that would be good for you to memorize, if you just memorize, listen, I know that when I'm thinking of the key beginning points of the nation of Israel, we're talking about 2,000 years before Christ. The Exodus, a key time when God now takes his people out of captivity and begins so much of what we're dealing with in terms of Jewish customs, Jewish laws, ceremonial laws, all the temple regulations, which we didn't have a temple yet, but we did it in a portable temple called the Tabernacle, 1445 B.C. So, you can see from the time of Abraham to the time of Moses, this is what you're dealing with here, about 600 years. The conquest, that shouldn't be a hard date for us to keep in mind. Roughly 1400 B.C. because they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So by the time they're settling in the promised land, in the book of Joshua there, if you can skip ahead a couple books here to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, uh, you can jot down 1050 B.C., 1050 B.C., that's approximate. He lived from about 1060 to 1020, but right there, 1050, that's when he's, you know, hearing the voice in the temple and God is about to radically change things. And we're about to move from what we had going on with God trying to directly deal with his people. And we're going to move into a monarchy. More on that in a second. David now, and if you remember nothing else, at least you can remember these big, nice, round numbers. 2000 B.C., Abraham, 1000 B.C., rough and dirty, David, the key player. we got a key player that God starts his nation with in 2,000 years before Christ. Then a 1,000 years later, he talks about the promise of bringing the ultimate king to the planet through David's lineage and uh, through David's ultimate son A 1,000 years later. David reigned in Israel from about 1011 to 971. He reigned for 40 years. Years, then of course I got two dates in Second Kings because Second Kings you've already memorized. The key word there is division. And division we had the North Fall and the South Fall. These two dates I'll speak often of in our study. Seven twenty-one Fall of the North, five eighty-six Fall of the South. So again, we're getting a sense of how this is working. Two thousand BC, Abraham, the Exodus, six four five six hundred years later. We had Samuel and David around 1,000 B.C. Then the nation fell in 521 in the north, mostly intermarried, although by the New Testament times they still knew their tribal ancestry. We see that in the book of Acts as we started studying Acts. And then the fall of the south. So we have this very big event called the uh, exile or the captivity in 586. It really starts in 605. By the time Nebuchadnezzar puts Jehoiakim as a vassal and and makes and taxes him for all intents and purposes the nation is under the strong arm of of babylon and because he double crossed them he comes back and destroys the temple and they get hauled off as prisoners and the first sacrifices by the way were in 536 bc as they reestablished in israel that's 70 years exactly as god called it from 605 to 536 all right I'm just putting this down as the final date because I want to start with the the concept of of the Abrahamic covenant there in the beginning of of Genesis. Of course, we get the first 11 chapters we'll look at as a whole next time. But starting in Genesis 12, 2000 B.C., and the end of the Old Testament, about 430, that we date Malachi's prophetic and preaching ministry to. So that's what we're looking at right there, about a thousand-year period from beginning to end. Not counting, of course, the things that relate to the Tower of Babel and the flood and creation. And those are much, much harder to speculate about the dates. And though we can look at the genealogies, and I won't be able to get too far into that. But nevertheless, in terms of the history of Israel. All right. I've got some boxes there. Four of them underneath, which would be another way for us. would be helpful for us to think through the periods of the Old Testament. God is forming things from 2090 to 1375. Let me get more specific with the numbers at this particular point. 2090, as best we can zero in on, is the Abrahamic covenant. When God makes that covenant with Abraham, we're talking almost 100 years before 2000 B.C. And when he makes that, something very important changes in 1375. In 1375, we start this period of theocracy where God is going to now, once they settle in the land after the conquest, now we're going to have a nation in a land. we got people that all are descendants of Abraham and some proselytes who aren't, but they're all living under the literal Law, Mosaic Law. Let's let them now enter into this relationship with me and live in the land as a nation. And they failed and they failed and they failed. And they spiraled into this cycle of sin during the period of Judges for 300 years. And that is what we have going on uh, during the theocracy. The monarchy, theocracy, by the way, God ruling directly his people without a king. Now we have a king in this kingdom, starting with Saul and then moving to David and then David's son Solomon and then all the other kings, 40 kings in the north, 40 kings in the south, roughly. And we have this period of him leading with kings and they're called kings and they are kings. Well, then we stop all the discussion of kings and we don't have kings anymore. As we hit that red line, and the red line on my overhead, which is the gray line on your worksheet, is the Babylonian exile. It's the exile or the captivity of the people of Israel. 586, of course, is the fall of the south, the ultimate fall of the south, and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. Then we've got one more period. We can call this the restoration of the nation, and much goes on here from 586 to 430. Now, I start with 586 because from the time they got kicked out, just like when your kid goes to his room or gets in trouble, right then he starts thinking about how bad it is, and I want to get back at it. And though they were there for 70 years, the bulk of it, uh, they were wanting to be back in the land, and they were Crying for restoration. And though the new, the Old Testament ends in 430, you need to realize that the Jews are still feeling like they're in the period of restoration. Your Orthodox Jew, Jewish friends or your conservative Jewish friends, if you go to Israel, you've been to Israel, they dress in black. They dress in black because they're mourning. They haven't restored the nation, the way it should be restored. We need the priesthood. We need sacrifice. We need the temple mount. We need all those things. We're still in a process of restoration. If you're a, a Jewish person that's rejected Christ, you're trying to get that all functioning again. But for the Old Testament period, it ends in 430. So 586 to 430, 156 years we've got We're restoring the nation. And it didn't end just because Malachi preached his final sermon and was done with that prophetic word. God gave us 400 years of silence in big, in large part, I believe, so that he can put a nice bow on the Old Testament, make sure that no one could claim that the Old Testament was written after the New Testament. And then he starts fulfilling all the major promises of the Old Testament as it relates to our salvation through Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David and crystal clear that God called it before it happened. Those are some of the time markers, and it might be helpful for us to kind of get some of those firmly in our mind as we work through what we're going to be doing for the next few months. All right, well, how do all the other 28 books fit in? That's a good question. Before I get to that, don't start filling in any boxes at this point. Before I get to that, so don't go filling in any boxes at this point. (laughs) I want to talk for a second about the order. You may think I'm playing fast and loose with the Bible because I'm taking the Bible here out of order. There is no sacred order to these books. Uh, These books were always recognized as God's Word from the very beginning as they were collected in in the worship center, in the tabernacle, and later in the temple. But the order of them is a man-made process to try and figure out a logical sequence of how we're to study them and understand them. In Luke 24, 44, you might remember, and I should have put this on the screen, I didn't, but Jesus is at the end in the great commission of Luke 24. He says, these words of mine that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is the traditional breakdown of the way in which the Jewish person thought about these collections of books in the Old Testament. And when you take Hebrew in school or seminary or even at a, at a at a synagogue, you go and learn a whole different order than what you're used to if you've grown up with a traditional Protestant Bible, the Old Testament order we're used to. So I just want to show you their order and show you that in some ways when you read it, you'll think, well, these Jewish people got it all messed up. They don't even know what they're talking about. They do know what they're talking about. As a matter of fact, there's a very compelling case for making our our canonical order different than it is. Now, I'm not going to go with our canonical order in our Bibles or their canonical order, but I want to get you familiar with it at least. When Jesus talked about the law and the prophets, let's just start with those two categories. Of course, the law is very little debate on what people would consider the Torah, the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses as it's called. Sometimes it's just called that, uh, the, the law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are all grouped together in the Jewish canon. The prophets now are divided into two subcategories in the Hebrew Bible. And usually on day one in a Hebrew classes, you've got to come back and be able to recite the order of the Hebrew canon because all the Hebrew printed Bibles, even for Christian pastors, are all put in the order of the Hebrew canon. And with software today we less or were less dependent on it than we used to be, but nevertheless, the prophets were given in terms of two categories: the former prophets they 're called, and the latter prophets. The former prophets in the Hebrew canon were Joshua judges first and second Samuel and first and second kings, which originally any scholar or Jewish person that's familiar with the Jewish canon will tell you was one book. They were divided for the sake of convenience because they were so large. But First and Second Samuel are kings. That's why I put Samuel and kings. The latter prophets were Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, which were the 12 that you and I are familiar with. We call them minor prophets, but they're really not minor in any sense in terms of weightiness, or subject, or importance, or authority. They're minor only in that they're shorter. And so they call them, we call them the minor prophets, they call them the twelve. So just like our last twelve books of the Old Testament, it's the same last books in theirs, and they follow the same order, which is convenient when you're looking through the small books of the Hebrew Bible or an English Bible. So... Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, by the way, if you didn't know what I'm talking about. The twelve minor prophets or what they called the twelve. Then there's the category Jesus called the Psalms. By the way, if you're looking at where we've been so far, you're thinking the prophets. I wouldn't put judges in the prophets. You've told me it's about judges. Where are the prophets there? No prophets there. Well, they know what they're talking about in terms of the prophets because all of our writers of Scripture are prophets. What they're trying to do is be able to have you read from Genesis to the end of, the, of, the, of Malachi and be able to give you a sense if you read them in that Hebrew canonical order, the whole gamut of biblical history of the Old Testament. And that does a good job. It's not the timeline books, but they do advance the, the story. In other words, if you take Jeremiah... It will give you so much of what's going on at the tail end of the the reign of of the southern tribe in Israel, and so they know why they're doing it, and they even help you with former and and latter prophets. The writings, though, Jesus called it whatever was written in the law, the prophets, and the writings, and he used the word Psalms because Psalms is the first book in the writings, and moderns will talk about the modern Hebrews, the law, the prophets, and the writings, Psalms is the beginning of that and the biggest and you'll see the poetic books we call them here psalms job this is the order proverbs ruth song of solomon ecclesiastes lamentations esther daniel ezra nehemiah and first and second chronicles that's the the order of the hebrew bible the hebrew canon we could argue why they do it that way there is a lot of sense to this order they are giving us a sense of how they want to teach their kids in the flow of biblical history there is no divine, divinely given way, no God-breathed way to order them. This semester, what I'm trying to do and what I'm about to give you in this letter C here, this is going to be the framework. Matter of fact, it would be wise for you just to have this and bring it back and have a sense of what we're doing as we move through all these books. This is going to be our roadmap. What I'm trying to do, and I don't fill in any boxes at this point, I'm just giving you some information here. This semester is going to differ from both your table of contents and a Hebrew Bible's table of contents. We're going to focus on those timeline books. We're going to see those timelines books while we could have added other books that may have advanced a bit of the story or filled in a gap. Those 11 books are the books we want to concentrate on. We're going to try to think throughout this whole semester here chronologically. We want to start and move through those timeline books and then deal with books that line up chronologically with those books as best we can until we get to the prophets, as you'll see, the pro- what we call the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. We're gonna group the poetry books together. That's one exception. We're gonna pull those books out and we're gonna spend some time looking at at all of those. And by poetry, I mean Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. I'm not counting Job in that. Well, I do, I do think I'll throw Job in that, even though it doesn't, you'll see in a minute. Hold that. Here's how we're gonna segment the prophets in our study. And again, this may just be academic for you because you're just gonna follow along however I teach it, but we're gonna look at the prophets this way. The prophets during the divided kingdom. Okay. When the kingdoms split, we've got writing prophets that we're going to look at, and we're going to look at those in chronological order. That'll be a group of them. We're going to think in those terms and hopefully get a sense of how those, those prophets group together in time. Then we're going to deal with the prophets of the single kingdom, and I don't mean the united kingdom or the unified kingdom. I mean the kingdom after the fall of the north. So from 721... B.C. to 586 B.C., we're going to look at that group of prophets, whether they're big, major prophets, or small books, minor prophets, those will be together, so that when you think about the prophets, when you hear someone quote the prophets, you go, oh, I can think in terms of divided kingdom prophets, that means from Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the way down to 721 B.C. Then I'm going to think in terms of 721 to 586, the single kingdom prophets, Then I'm going to think of exilic prophets. Exilic, captivity, those words are synonymous in our discussion. Those are the prophets during the the exile, that 70-year exile. Then we're going to think in terms of post-exilic, after the exile. If we can think chronologically about the timeline books, we can put together, as you'll see on this chart, books that surround those timeline books. Think just separately about poetry books and we will group job with psalms proverbs ecclesiastes and song of solomon we'll look at those together then we're going to look at the prophets and try and think in four different categories and if you can think that way when someone says haggai you'll be able to uh, okay i see where we are in the timeline i understand that that's just giving you a sense of where we're going hey why didn't you fill in those cuz you know them genesis exodus numbers joshua judges first samuel second samuel first kings second kings ezra nehemiah you're going to say those in your sleep tonight Matter of fact, the last person you see tonight, make sure you can say those 11 books in order. It may mess you up next time someone says, do you know the Old Testament books? And you're going to say them all wrong. And they'll think you don't know the order. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd, Samuel, 1st, 2nd, Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. Easy. And the red line stands for what there on the screen? Babylonian captivity. And another word for that is the exile or the doghouse, if you'd like to call it that. Now, I didn't number these boxes because I was running out of room, it seemed, on the screen. It would get really small. But if you look carefully at the screen as to how I fill these in, I'm going to go back to your Awana days, and at least we're going to go through the Old Testament books in order. But they will not be put in order in the boxes from left to right. You're going to go here, 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 so that you can start to map out how these fall in line with the timeline. So let's start. Genesis, what's the next book? Exodus, that's already on the chart. Don't have to write anything. Now I'm missing a book. What book am I missing? Leviticus. Where does that go? Well, that one's easy. It goes right under Exodus. So put Leviticus, or its abbreviation, right under the book of Exodus. We're going to learn why this book is a supplemental book to Exodus. Exodus did something very important in advancing the history of Israel. We've got the Ten Commandments, we've got the, the Passover, we got the plagues, we've got the Exodus, and then we have this book, Leviticus, that is not advancing in any significant way, the historical timeline. It's all about the Levites. Who were the Levites? The Levites were the priests. The priests were going to have to take this tabernacle that was talked about in Exodus and function within it. How do you do that? Here's the instructions on how to do that. Levi was one of the t- 12 tribes, a special tribe. They couldn't get any land, As Joshua meted it out in the conquest, they couldn't get land because God was going to be their inheritance and they were going to be people that did nothing but concern themselves with leading the people in serving and worshiping God. So Leviticus is a supplement to Exodus. So we got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is next. We got that on the timeline. What am I missing now? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. As your kids are in Awana tonight learning the sequence of Old Testament books. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, as you may know and we will reiterate when we get there, means literally the title, the second law. It's not another law. It's the second giving of the law. We have had the law in Exodus. We have the discussion of how the law should be implemented in Exodus and in Numbers. Numbers is advancing the wanderings, but during the wanderings, now Moses, in that time that he had, by God's breath, he was driven and carried along by the Spirit of God, as Peter says, to write down the implications of the law. Here's how it works in specific situations. Here's how remuneration works. Here's how uh, restitution works. These are the things we see in Deuteronomy. So we have the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. We've got those already. What am I missing now? Ruth. Where's Ruth go? Right under Judges. Ruth is a tender little love story. I understand that. But really what it does is gives us a very bright, happy spot in the middle of one of the darkest 300-year period uh, of Israel's Old Testament history. So we put it under Judges, and you can put a smiley face in the box because it is a bright spot, a happy spot, where God is setting up now the birth of who? In the very last chapter, Ruth chapter 4, it's talking about the coming of David. David is going to be born from this connection here with Ruth. And it's a tragic beginning in chapter 1 because the times were tragic in Judges, and it ends with this great story about the ancestor of David. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, we got those. What comes next canonically in our American canon, 1 Chronicles. First Chronicles should be stretched there in that rectangle underneath 1 and 2 Samuel. It's going to cover both First and 2 Samuel information. It's going to deal with the rise of David very briefly, the life of David, which is what 2 Samuel is all about. And then after 1 Chronicles comes 2 Chronicles, and that is going to advance the story and give us some background on 1 and 2 Kings. As we'll see, Chronicles is only going to care and concern itself with the southern tribes of Israel. So they don't even care about the 40 kings of the north. And you don't even read about them, you don't see about them. The hard thing about reading 1st and 2nd Kings is you're bouncing back and forth from the North Kings, the South Kings, the Northern Kings, the Southern Kings, the Northern Kings. You read people and you say, I, I can't even remember where they fit. 1st and 2nd Chronicles gives you that clear shot from David's life all the way down to the fall of Jehoiakim and the end of the Southern tribe which was all that was left at that particular point. The ten tribes of the north were dispersed. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. What comes next in our American canon, in the order? Ezra, Nehemiah, got those in order. Then what? Esther, Esther. Esther, you might remember, is here. You can put under Ezra during this time of the Restoration We've got uh, this, another interesting story, not quite a love story. Actually, it starts with a, a bit of a divorce at the beginning of that book, but we'll look at it. It's a great book. goes right there under Ezra. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, number Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First Samuel, Second Samuel, 1 Kings, Second Kings, 1 Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Right there, we filled in the whole top two tiers of this. Now we're getting to a category that in our Protestant canon, in our Christian canon, Now we're going to start a category in our canon of the poetry books. And the first poetry book, though it seems more like a story, but it's written in poetry, not prose, is the book of Job. Where's Job go? Well, this is a weird place for it. I put it under Genesis. Why'd you put it under Genesis? Because there's a lot of hints in the book that that's where it belongs. It starts with him sacrificing for his family, this patriarchal leader, Well, that's something the Levites should do. No, that's something he's engaged in. He lives an awfully long time, if you read the book and add up the numbers carefully. He's living almost 200 years. You've got a guy that's living in the age bracket of what you saw not long after the flood. And there's lots of reasons for that. But you saw precipitous drop in age. I'll do it your direction. Precipitous drop in the age of people on the earth from the deluge or the flood. And Job fits nicely right in that period of descending uh, ages. Abraham was, what, 175? Here's, here's Job in that same time period. Linguistically, at the end of the book, it talks about money, and it uses a, in, in our ESV, it just translates it, he gave him a piece of money, I think it, call, it calls it. It's a Hebrew word that's used all the way back in the book of Genesis. It's an old word, an ancient word. It's a word that we, is so old in Genesis, we don't even know what it amounts to. If you look up in your monetary charts in the back of your study Bible, I mean, most of this we can, we know. Well, this is how much of a talent of silver is, and this is how much, you know, a a mina is. Well, here's this Hebrew word, we just translated a piece of money because we don't know, but it goes back to the days of Genesis. Things like that give us a very clear indication that Job belongs in the time frame of the patriarchs. And by patriarchs, I'm talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the early days of, of Genesis. So Job goes there. Now, we started the poetic books. I got Job. What comes next in our in our Christian canon? Psalms. Big book. Now, Psalms is a collection of worship songs, but many of them are by David. Many of them are by David, and many of them are dedicated to David, and so we're going to put it in the time frame of David. And if you want David's life, you should be under... Second Samuel, of course, we learn about him in First Samuel, but Second Samuel is when he's the king and he's ruling, and so we'll put Psalms under Second Samuel. Psalms, Psalms, when we're talking about the collection, Psalm. If you're quoting one, you wouldn't say the, you know, you wouldn't say Psalms 23. It's Psalm 23. Anytime you quote a singular Psalm, you know that. What comes after Psalms? Proverbs. Okay, let's put that right next door because Solomon's son is responsible for much of the Proverbs. Not all of them, as we'll see, but we'll put them right next door. And of course, this is not to scale. What comes next? So Job, Psalms, Proverbs. What's next in, in our Christian canon? Ecclesiastes. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon did. So we'll stack that right underneath Proverbs. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. What's next? Song of Solomon, the racy book. We'll put that right there. Solomon wrote that. Some people... Um, stumble over the reality of Solomon writing that book. Seems like a very tender love story. It seems like a very rich celebration of monogamous, you know, one man, one woman kind of thing. And Solomon seemed like a real womanizer and all these, I don't understand. This is clearly a picture of him looking back. I can think this clearly with regret. His downfall was his many wives and how it just compromised his spiritual life and everything else. It became the thing that God even pointed to and said, here's Solomon's problem. And he writes a love song about this wife of his initially. Maybe he wrote it early on during that period of time. But there's theories about it. We'll talk about it when we get to the Song of Solomon, a celebration of his romantic love with the Shulamite bride. All right. Now, let's move down here. And I've kind of blown up this period from First Kings to Nehemiah. And you can see where the exile gets fatter. I'm trying to expand this section. Let's deal with this bottom list now, okay? These bottom books. put them in different colors up on the screen, and I tried to do something a little different there with the outlines of some of these. So we're going to move in the canonical order, our Christian canonical order, which again is not sacred. There's nothing divine about it. They're not sanctioned by God that way. We're going to put them down in an order. And some of these things are questioned, as we'll see. We're we're struggling with dates of Joel, for instance, books like that. But we're going to do our best to put them in, in chronological order. But you're going to put them sequentially, one by one, in the order of the canon. So watch carefully where they go. And you may have to count boxes here to make sure it goes in the right place. So uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. What's next, Sunday school grads? You took a whole class on it with Pastor Pete, did you not? Did not he, te- did he not teach that? Isaiah. Find this little box right here and put Isaiah right there or the abbreviation for Isaiah right there. Isaiah, big book, rich book. You could spend a whole semester on Isaiah, of course. We'll try to do it. I mean, we can't do it justice in a survey class, but we'll do our best to take a good look At um, why God said so much about the coming Messiah and the coming kingdom, the millennial kingdom in Isaiah. All right, what comes after Isaiah? Isaiah, what's next? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Now, if you know Jeremiah, you could probably figure out where this goes, couldn't you? I'm going to show you where all these things, why they're they're outlined the way they are, in a minute. But Jeremiah, let's put him right there. He's right before the red line or the gray line on your outline because he was called, his nickname is the weeping prophet because he's crying over the destruction of Jerusalem. He has a good long ministry, but let's put him right there next to the Babylonian captivity or the exile. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Then interestingly enough, in our Christian canon, we stick a little book next to Jeremiah and it's called what? Lamentations. Now let's throw that down and make it just edge over into the captivity because in Lamentations, as it says, just by its name, it's a lament. He's crying. He's, he's mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem. So we've already started the exile here, clearly, and, and Lamentations is a reminder of that and we're going to put it right next to Jeremiah because Jeremiah wrote it. It's not a prophet. It's a lament. It's not named after a prophet. There's no man named Lamentations. Lamentations is a description of his sorrowful song. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, what's next? Now these, we call them the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Let's put him here on the right side of the Babylonian captivity. And you could argue that they're contemporaneous. The next guy that we're going to look at, because Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, what's next? Daniel. But let's put him in front, because Daniel, from the very beginning of the book, we get him as a young teenager being dragged off to Babylon. So I'm starting to build... In your mind, a timeline. When you see Isaiah and then you see Ezekiel, these are in two different periods of time on the timeline. It's important in our mind that we keep those separate. And when you dive into reading these books, you need to know, oh, I get it now. Even when you think about passages that are quoted in Jeremiah, like, you know, he's going to give you a future and a hope. You've got to think, why, where was that on the timeline? Here they are just before they go into the Babylonian exile. Everything's fallen apart. He's trying to encourage the people. There is a promise started in Jeremiah 12. God is going to fulfill that promise. And one day, even the Palestinian or the land promise said, if we repent, we can get our land back. God's got a future and a hope for us. Those are the kinds of things, just knowing where it fits on the timeline can help you interpret the book. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. What comes next? We start what we call the minor prophets or the Hebrew canonical order calls the 12. What's the first one? Now it's getting harder, right? You have to ask your kids. What's next? Hosea. Now let's put him up here in my yellow box. And now that I've diverted off the line that I have that on the screen is whatever weird color that is, I'm going to make a distinction. And the reason I put it up there is not because I'm running out of room. I put it up there because there's a different audience in view. If you start this line that we've started to fill in, this middle line, Isaiah, it starts with Isaiah, it ends with Ezekiel, and I kind of tucked Lamentations under Jeremiah. All of these prophets are preaching their messages primarily, though they talk about other nations, primarily to the southern tribes of Israel. That's it. Now, what's the one on the top? Well, I tried to do it on top because I'm reminding you that this is a northern tribe book. This book in this message of Hosea is preaching to the northern tribes. That means it's got to be early. It's got to be in 1 Kings. It's got to be during that period where we still have a divided kingdom. I'm not going to preach to the northern kingdom before, I mean, after the kingdom is dispersed and is gone. So this goes early in the timeline, and it's above the line of southern prophets, Hosea. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Hosea, what's next? Joel, maybe that goes to the northern... No, there's no rhyme or reason to that. I mean, there was a rhyme or reason to why we did it the way we did it and the way the Jews did it because the Jewish people, we followed their pattern in this. But if we're going to think chronologically, we're going to think in terms of time, we're going to think in terms of geography, we're going to put Joel here. Now, Joel, I will tell you, put an asterisk next to that because if you look in your study Bible, the theories about when this is is split, but I'm going to put it here. It's probably one of the first prophets that we have, one of the first writing prophets. Elijah and Elisha were prophets, but they don't have a book named after them because they don't have a body of work uh, like we have of these others. So Joel, just by where we put him on the chart, who's he speaking to? Southern tribes. And it's an early book. We'll talk about that when we get there. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, what comes next? Amos. Where does that go? Well, you only know this if you study it. it, goes to the northern tribes. And it probably came sequentially or chronologically before Hosea. So I'm putting it in this order, and if you're going to think, and you are a visual learner, you're going to think, okay, Amos and Hosea, northern prophets, only two of them, and you can understand why, because we've got a short period even in this divided kingdom from Jeroboam and Rehoboam to 721 BC, so God gives two prophets that are recorded in the scripture that are going exclusively to the northern kingdom. Doesn't mean that Isaiah doesn't talk about the north, but Amos and Hosea are speaking exclusively, by and large, to the north. And Isaiah has got a message for the south, using the north often as an illustration and a reminder of how important it is for the south to get their act together. Hosea, Joel, Amos, what comes next? Obadiah. Where am I going to put that? I'm going to put it way over down at the bottom here, on whatever color that is. In the bottom left, I'm going to put it early. And this one's disputed too, but I'm going to put it early on the list because it comes early in time and I'm going to put it in the bottom. Why? Well, because it's not it's not a message to the northern tribes, and it's not a message to the southern tribes. He's what we might call a traveling prophet or a foreign prophet. So I'm going to put foreign prophets at the bottom. There's three of them in the Old Testament, and the first one is Obadiah. And he goes to Edom. Remember Edom? All the way back, we'll see this in Genesis and where the nation birthed, but Edom was being warned by Obadiah about their impending doom, their pride, and all the things that had led to God's judgment coming on them for their past, for their treatment of Israel, God has got a, got a serious message to Obadiah. So we're putting these in order. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, that's the poet, poetry, the lament of Jeremiah. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, what's next? Jonah, Jonah, now, you know enough right now to know where he's going to go, probably. You got a 50 50 chance. Because we know he goes where? He's got a one way ticket to Nineveh. He's a foreign prophet. That's not the north. That's not the south. He's a foreign prophet. He's going to Nineveh. And you know the story. Gets barfed up on the beach. He preaches. And he preaches. And he's not telling them to repent. He's just saying, it's over for you guys. You're in trouble. God's going to destroy you. And they repent. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, what's next? Micah. Let's put him right underneath Hosea. And again, there's a little debate as to who comes first here, but they're all tucked right here in to this period in Isaiah's ministry. And Isaiah's ministry was really long, and it would be better maybe to put line charts, but we we don't have all that space on your page. But let's put him there, commencing his ministry somewhere during the period of Isaiah's ministry. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Do you know what's next? Nahum. Well, who is Nahum? Nahum is preaching to a foreign country. Who's he preaching to? He's preaching to Nineveh of all places. Why? I put a gap. It's not just bad spacing. I put a gap on purpose between Jonah and Nahum. That's bigger than between Obadiah and Jonah. Obadiah preaches to Edom. Jonah preaches to Nineveh. Nahum preaches to Nineveh. Lots of time it expired, and guess what? He goes and preaches and says, "Get your act together!" And they don't, and they are destroyed. So Jonah and Nahum are two prophets that go to the same place in two different periods of time. And one is reluctant and doesn't preach specifically about repentance and yet they repent and Nahum comes and calls them on the carpet for their sin and they are destroyed and they don't repent. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, what's next? Habakkuk, let's put him next to Jeremiah here. Habakkuk is watching things fall apart in the southern kingdom. He's crying out to God. He's watching the enemies of God prevail over the people of God, and he's got a complaint. It's a great book. Very helpful for us when we feel that way. Why isn't God stepping in and fixing this? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. What's next? Zephaniah. That goes right between Habakkuk and Micah. Zephaniah. Now, if you just look at what we've got so far, I can think clearly in terms of northern prophets, Amos and Hosea. I can think in terms of all the prophets that are leading up to the Babylonian captivity. Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah. I got three foreign prophets, Obadiah, Jonah, and Nahum. And then I've got two exilic prophets, Daniel, who goes to the king's court in Babylon, and Ezekiel, who's out there prophesying to all the commoners and the common people out in the countryside. I only have three books of the Old Testament left. What's next? Haggai, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, bam, bam, bam. Those three books are what we now call the post-exilic prophets, three prophets. And they're some of the, I think, the best Old Testament books, taking people who've finally gotten through the ringer and the doghouse of the Babylonian captivity and saying, now that you're settled in, did you learn your lesson? And the answer, of course, is sadly, no. Their priorities were messed up. So many things were out of whack. These preachers came and tried to wake up a sleeping nation. If you learn the timeline books, you get familiar with that chart that you just filled in. You'll have the roadmap for where we're going, and you can think in these terms as we work through where we're going for the next few months here. And we'll get into some of the details, the stories, and the exciting things that happened in the book of Genesis next week. Let me pray for you. God, thanks for tonight getting us started in this, giving the lay of the land to us through just working through some visual charts that I hope have been helpful. I pray especially for our minds to latch on to some of this as we review it, that we might be able to get a good handle on the Old Testament. It's easy to quote the Old Testament, but to kind of get the richness and the power of what these words mean, it oftentimes takes a recollection of where this was being said and to whom it was being said. Because while many of these statements were not being said to us, as the Bible is very clear, it is all written for us it's to instruct us. It's to warn us. It's to give us examples that we aren't to follow and examples we are to follow. And it's to remind us of the kinds of things that have happened in the past as you've worked out your promises, your fidelity, your loyalty, as your attributes have been on display through these actions of the Old Testament prophets and the writings of these great stories of the Old Testament to make us a different kind of people, to know that your great glory is going to prevail and we need, we'd be wise to choose life in our everyday decisions, not neglecting to be as we ought to be, certainly as New Testament Christians, as New Covenant believers, people that are indwelt by the Spirit, to put first the things of God, to seek first the kingdom of God. So God, teach us much in this series, get us excited about piecing together all the stories, and we know so many, but I pray we could think chronologically in a way that would give us a great power in our recollection of the Old Testament, even our effectiveness in our quoting of the Old Testament. So God, I just pray for a great semester. Enrich us through this study, I pray, one more time, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.